amongst uh, Chandani's 14 books are six critical editions in the Oxford Classics reissue series of the pioneering Indian woman's autobiography and fiction written in English. Uh, included in the series are the collected prose and poetry of Toru Dutt uh, and memories of Cornelia Sorabji, India's first woman barrister. Uh, Chandani's also published three novels, Softly, As I Leave You, Turtle Nest and If the Moon Smiled, and has a short story collection called Moth and Other Stories. She's currently researching South Asian uh, diasporic literature, in which uh, she has a strong interest. She's uh, the editor, or has edited several literary journals, including Moving Worlds, um, uh, Mean Jin, uh, on globalisation and post-colonial culture, amongst others. Uh, she's uh, currently Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Monash University in Australia, uh, and in 2012, she was awarded the Ludwig Mac Hirschfeld Visiting Chair of Australian Studies by Free University Berlin. So, Chandani, welcome. Thank you, Dom. It's lovely to be here. And thank you very much to Elika for inviting me so personally and warmly. Thank you also to Hermione Lee and uh, the Centre for Life Writing at Oxford. Through this paper titled, I have changed this title a tiny bit from what I have given six months ago. To, just to get the keywords right, Sri Lankan traditions and the imperial imagination. Through this paper, we may uncover memory in a sense, a what might have been, so that we can perhaps reach an alternative axis of understanding Sri Lanka's past, as well as colonial history's part in it. The paper is about post-colonial haunting, I believe, a back-to-the-future attempt to revitalize a phantom presence a trace, a cultural heritage. I have structured the paper in this way. Okay. Three segments. The first would be context and history of the village in the jungle. Wolf's identity and authorial point of view in the novel. Sri Lankan traditions versus the village in the jungle with special focus on three things. The temple, Buddhism, the tank, the irrigation system and the administrative and legal system. Right? Okay. My stance is that, as evidenced by his authorial viewpoint or point of view in the village in the jungle, Wolf occupied an uncertain, shifting space in his relationship to imperialism and its administration. My aim is to examine this ambivalence through the village in the jungle. But first, on this historic occasion, the centennial of the novel, let me take a few minutes to celebrate its achievement. The Village in the Jungle is one of the most complex and contradictory novels written in English about Sri Lanka during British colonization. It fictionalizes the tiny village of Badegama, framed by British colonization of the early 20th century, and is set in the deep southern interior of the country. It speaks of an unsophisticated people living with nature, their simple joys, their tragedies, and their lives. It is a beautiful work of descriptive fiction, full of imagery, designed to give the reader an in-depth view of a fragment of Sri Lankan culture. The village in the jungle, however, must not be taken as a representation of the totality, but of a very limited exposure, if at all. The story is woven around the main players, the villager Silindu and his daughters Punchimanika and Hinnihami. They are crippled by the drought-ridden jungle, alien system of administration and lack of 
and left the agency to pull through a crisis. The story begins to end with the murder by Silindu of Babihami, the village headman, and Fernando, the small-time trader, who plot to induce Punjimanika to be Fernando's paramour. Very dramatic, okay? Babun, Punjimanika's husband, and Silindu are locked up on trumped-up charges, and the novel plays out the tragic end of Punjimanika. It then speaks of the jungle invading the village and obscuring it in its tentacles. And that's the end. So let me share a few unforgettable vignettes from the novel. Tapping sensitively and expertly into the southern Singha dialect patterns and rhythms of speech, Wolf captures Silindu's fondness for his twin daughters as he addresses them like this. Little Toad, why have you left the pond? Isn't there food there for your little belly? Rice and coconuts and mangoes and little cakes of Kurakan? Is the belly full that you have left the pond for the jungle? Foolish little toad, the water is good but the trees are evil. You have come to a bad place of dangers and devils. The little girls are about uh, three or four at the time that Wolf uh, talks to them in this way. And why I make a special note of Wolf's sensitivity to the southern dialect is that in Sri Lanka, I think most of you will be aware, there's a huge difference between the dialects of the hill country, for instance, Colombo, and the southern coast. For instance, if I take two words, Hanika, Hanikatayang means in the southern dialect, let's go quickly. In Singhala of the uh, rest of the country, you'd say Ikmanatayang. So Hanika and Ikmanata, just like, very interestingly, with great knowledge, uh, Wolf calls Punchimanika with a A, M-E-N-I-K-A. And that's a southern dialect name. If he called her Punchimanike, ending with an E, the K ending with an E, Manike, he would have made her a great lady of the Candian society. So you see how interesting that is. As it is, it just means a little gem, Punchimanika. Okay? So that sensitivity is really a, a, a great, a great talent and uh, shows his um, knowledge, right? So that's one. Number two and three that I will now show you, the following two extracts demonstrate Wolf's flawless depiction of one, the intimacy of the first sexual encounter between Punchimanika and Babun, and two, an ineffably poignant moment of their gentle, near-articulate relationship against the simple realities of their culture. So the first one, the sexual uh, experience. She allowed him, she, Punchimanika, allowed him, Babun, to take her into the thick jungle, but she struggled with him, and her whole body shook with fear and desire as she felt his hands upon her breasts. A cry broke from her, in which joy and desire mingled with the fear and the pain. Ayo, ayo. Once again, the word ayo, Wolf left as is in, uh, in the singular speech in Village in the Jungle, because he explained later that he could not find a word that would replace it in English with the same excruciating pain of, say, alas, or my God. But it has a uh, a more, um, what is the word? I think excruciating would be the word. Okay? So, and the next one? It was evening, just about the time before the lamps are lit in the house, when the air grows cool and the wind dies down and the afterglow of the setting sun is in the sky. The work in the chain are for the man 
and in the house for the woman was over. Babun was squatting in the compound near the house, and Punjimanika stood behind him, leaning against the doorpost. From time to time a word or two was spoken, but for the most part they were content to allow the silence of the evening to descend upon them, as they watched with vacant eyes the light fade from the sky. My word there for vacant would be inward. You know, uh, they, there's a, it's a Buddhistic thing to have an inward look rather than a vacant outward look as if they were not thinking about anything. So just I thought I'll mention that because I come to this kind of thing later on, okay? All right. There is more. But I hope that this summary has demonstrated Wolf's sometimes delicately imagined introspective aesthetic of village life. For me, this is the novel's most assured achievement. Let me now move on to those three points that I put up earlier. So the first one, context and history of the novel. In 1908, just five years before the publication of The Village in the Jungle, Ananda Kumaraswamy dedicated his iconic medieval Sinhalese art to the Sinhalese people as, I quote, a memorial of a period that they were not at the time willing to understand. And he went on, the educated Sinhalese of today, after on the one hand a century of foreign government and of education uh, in which the national culture has been completely ignored, and on the other hand an equal period of subservient and obsequious imitation of foreign manners, have little reason to be proud of their present achievement in the art and life. Evidence of shallow thought is everywhere to be seen in an exaltation of the present age at the expense of the past. It is, however, only in an effort to realize this, the ideals of this very past that there lies the possibility of a true regeneration and revitalizing of the national life of the Sinhalese people. So famous uh, Ananda Kumaraswani wrote, wrote a lot, right? It was into this denationalized climate, as outlined by Kumaraswamy, that the village in the jungle was published. It was the first attempt in fiction to portray the Sri Lankan villager. Drawing from his own experience with the local community that he administered as assistant government agent from 1908 to 1911, Wolf located the story in the fictional village of Badegama in the Hambantota district. It's very interesting if you take a look at the book there, um, uh, Chris Ondachi's book. He has actually discovered where the real Badegama would be. Right, so because it is a reference point for many writers in Singhala, including Martin Vikram Singha, who talks about Badegama or Grass for My Feet, they talk about Bad, but we no, don't know where it is really that Wolf's Badegama was. But now, including the will that left the house to Silindu, has been discovered by Michael Ondachi, which is a great find, I think. Okay, so first published in London in 1913, The Village in the Jungle was translated into Singhala in 1947 one year before Sri Lanka gained independence from Britain and introduced to the high, high school curricula in 1949. But the novel in English really impacted on Sri Lankan literary milieu after Wolfe's brief return to Sri Lanka in 1960, during which time he was fitted by high government officials, including our president, academia and literati. It was a timely visit. 
After gaining independence in 1948, Sri Lanka was in the process of decolonization and renationalization that had commenced much earlier in the 20th century. Sinhala literature had already been established and the uh, sorry Sinhala literature had already established the pro-nationalist post-colonial tradition of writing back to empire by fictionalizing the foundational traditions of the village. Martin Vikramasinghe had become a national celebrity with his novel Gamperalia. I think most of you must be aware of the book, yeah? Okay. Uh, 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 you've done it in school. No, okay. Uh, the Transformation of the Village, the first novel written in Sinhala in the realist genre. Sinhala replaced English as the national language in 1956 and the medium of education returned to Sinhala or Tamil. In 1972, the country returned to its original Sanskrit name, Lanka. Pro-nationalist writing in English, such as J. Vijayatunga's memoir, Grass for My Feet, I, I recommend everyone to read this wonderful book, uh, which was published in 1935 uh, by Edwin Arnold, uh, Edward Arnold in UK, the same publisher of The Village in the Jungle, was reprinted in Sri Lanka in 1974. With Wolf's Visit in 1960, the novel in English was reprinted in Sri Lanka and has not been out of print since. From 1974, Wolf's manuscript of the novel has been the treasured possession of the Peradeniya University Library, and I would recommend Yasmin Gunaratna's introduction in her uh, in the new edition of *The Village in the Jungle*, where she compares uh, the manuscript with the novel. It's a really interesting read. Okay, just to move on with that little bit of fact, a small but dedicated circle of Sri Lankan critics revived *The Village in the Jungle* with gusto with each milestone in Wolf's life, the centennial of his birth, 1880, arrival and departure from Sri Lanka, return visit in 60, and death in 1969. The most recent book publications are Chris Ondachi's Wolf in Ceylon, 2005, a pictorial survey of Wolf's travels in Sri Lanka, and the new annotated edition by Gunaratna. Through the years, a cocoon of rave reviews has spun around the novel. They range from a celebration of its position in the world as a, uh, inverts, novel unique in the English literature of the colonial era, to Sri Lankan historian K.M. De Silva's observation that it encapsulates, in a much narrower way, the distilled essence of a British civil servant's sympathetic but acute observation of the people whom he ruled. The novel's indirect influence on Virginia Woolf's writing into the lighthouse and its verbal and thematic connections with T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland have been discussed quite thoroughly. In Sri Lanka, Michael Roberts has just now uh, opened up a web archive, I think inspired by uh, Elika's, um, this new move, and that looks like that's going well with, an in with interviews by Leonard Wolf. And uh, what else? I would also talk about... Uh, Nathan Sivasambi's, I think Elke has all, uh, the wonderful uh, lot of work he's doing on Wolf and the association that was recently established uh, to keep the memory alive and take it forward. In all this, one vitriolic review in all this local reverence, which I also ask you to read, is Rajiva Vijaysinghe's essay titled Leonard Wolf's Sacred Cow, published in 1980, that castigates the novel as a basically vulgar and patronizing work. As this paper will demonstrate, 
altered through many reader, uh, readings from teenage to the present time. I, I read it in my second year in the university with uh, uh, such a fanatically devoted uh, fan of Michael Ondaatje that I carried away this gem of masterpiece of Michael Ondaatje uh, of, of uh, Leonard Wolf for many years until I then reviewed it as a master student and now again. Okay, so. Through many readings from teenage to the present time, my own view would fall somewhere between these two ends of the spectrum. In the UK, the Bloomsbury Circle held mixed early reviews. Quinton Bell uh, praised it as a novel of superbly dispassionate observation. Lytton Strachey reviled it as a work with too many blacks in it. In, oh, yeah. in obituary, he also called Leonard um, the lord of a million blacks uh, in the desert, I think, when he was in Sri Lanka misquoting, but that was the kind of thing. In obituaries published after Wolf's death in 1969, the Times understated the novel's achievement as a, quote, delicate study of the values of the primitive mind and little more, close quote, while the New Statesman ignored it altogether. More substantially, Letters of Leonard Wolf, edited by Frederick Spotts, was published in 1989, while the delegates gathered here today contribute to ongoing research. So I will now move on to my second point, Wolf's identity and authorial point of view in the novel. Wolf's mediocre performance at the civil service examination in UK debarred him from elitist appointments in sought-after British colonies. So... It was a reluctant and uh, resentful young man who made the long journey by boat in 1904 to the small, less important colony, Sri Lanka, as a cadet in the Ceylon service, a civil service, first in Jaffna and then in Kandy. I will put up the map later, but just for people who have forgotten what Sri Lanka looks like. So Hambantota is where he ended up, and Jaffna is there, and Kandy. So he was a cadet here and here, and then Hambantota, okay, north center and southern provinces. In 1908, he was promoted to assistant government agent in the southern province, where until 1911, he administered the district of Hambantota, the location of the village in the jungle, as I said. What I find most significant to this paper is the insider-outsider personality that perhaps best describes Wolf's presence in the novel. A carapace, within quotes because that's what he calls it, uh, that he grew to protect himself in high school from being bullied for his Jewish ethnicity, continued through Cambridge and the Apostles, and later in his associations with the Bloomsbury Circle. That he associated with these Bloomsbury people even after his return home from Sri Lanka in 1911 seems to suggest to me his complicity with its double standards of maintaining imperialist power relations between the metropolis and the colony while professing to be emancipated left liberals. In Sri Lanka, Wolf's carapace protected him from his own compatriots who were generally of a loud but vulgar and good-natured caste. His stories from the East fictionalize his critique of his colleagues and as Anindya Roy comments, and I quote, opens up a particularly brutal history of power relations between the metropolis and the colony. Close quote. However, the carapace broke open to expose a raw vulnerability when he confronted the culture shock of the little segment of Sri Lanka to which he was admitted. In 1905, one year after he arrived in Sri Lanka, he noted in a letter to Lytton Strachey, his friend, 
sorry i should have put that up earlier okay it is absolutely incredible how futile life can be his writing clinton from sri lanka in 1905 and if one doesn't become engrossed in its futility i don't see that there is anything to stop one going mad and towards the end of his tenure in sri lanka he wrote to scratchy again and there we have it to think of existence at all fills me with horror and sickness the utter foulness the stupid blind vindictive foulness of everything and of myself i shall probably not write again until i come back at the end of 1910 and he didn't right he was that near suicidal between these expressions reminiscent perhaps of kurt's realization the horror the horror in africa wolf recorded recorded his volatile response to the colony in an occasional letter he noted the charm of the people and often more often the strange melancholy of the buddhist philosophy that he admired a lot but his descriptions of the natives of the hammantara district as he referred to them for which he was reprimanded by e m foster illustrate a standpoint of cultural superiority and condescension for the subject race i quote from a letter to saxon sydney turner some of the inhabitants of this place are scarcely human at every place i stop crowds of these defaulters those who have not paid road tax for instance are brought up to me wild savages from the hills spectacles incredible to anyone who has not seen them naked except for a foul rag around their loins wild ape-like creatures with masses of tangled hair falling over their shoulders their black bodies covered with the white scales of parangi a disease that the portuguese spread from all this wolf's identity evolves as an in- inextricable mix of montaigne and shakespeare conflicting uneasily in him montaigne's idealization of the cannibals as wild fruits produced by nature and shakespeare's unsympathetic portrayal of caliban as brutish pathetic and crass this i believe is also wolf's point of view in the village in the jungle wolf had little social life in the colony he noted in his letters that an aga assistant government agent led the life of a dog He met up with a few compatriots now and then whom he considered well before him uh, be, well below him in intelligence but because of the taboos set by his own government he could not socialize with the local hierarchy his knowledge was thus limited to petty officials under him and the village refuse you know the, uh, the lowest of the low uh, of the villagers who did not pay tax or who had committed some crime or something like that right the only local women of his acquaintance were prostitutes whom he used and i quote in sheer desperation of the life he was leading which led left him amused degraded and debauched close quote surprising for someone of his intellectual curiosity wolf also showed no interest in the country's history culture or architecture he refers to official visits to anuradhapura but makes no mention of its renowned historic sites He wrote to Lytton that he had no time, and I quote, to keep up the intellectual side of his character. He got down books on Sri Lanka that he never read, even though he did find time to read Foster's novels as they were published, and also Flaubert's Madame Bovary, for one example. With all this, I wonder how seriously we should take Wolfe's self-professed shift from imperialism to anti-imperialism. 
in growing an autobiography of the years 1904 to 1911 dedicated to the Sri Lankan experience but published 60 years after he left Sri Lanka Wolf would reflect on its splintering effect on his convictions of the Sri Lankan experience and he says and he would say as time went on I became more and more ambivalent politically schizophrenic an anti-imperialist who enjoyed the flesh pots of imperialism, loved the subject people and their way of life, and knew from the inside how evil the system was beneath the surface for ordinary men and women. In the light of letters written while in Sri Lanka, the more immediate, compared to these much later reflections in growing, Wolf's conversion to anti-imperialism seems to indicate the need to prove, perhaps to himself, as much as to the world, that the internationalist space he occupied on his return to London and later as founder of the Hogarth Press grew from his Sri Lankan experience that he had first-hand experience. Okay. Let me now speculate on Wolf's reasons for fictionalizing, and I quote from the book, a small dwindling village, one of those villages doomed to slow decay to fade out, close quote. His diaries record villages flourishing as well as on the verge of extinction. In the novel too, he notes two prospering villages, Mahapatana and Beragama. Considering fiction as partial and partisan, we may assume that Wolf fictionalized what he knew and what most dramatically captured his imagination. But leaving that aside, was there another agenda that steered him? Why was Wolf's focus a village beyond redemption, its inhabitants, quoting, near to the animals which live in the jungle around them, close quote. In addition, Wolf's narrative strategy of providing in-text explanations and footnotes suggests that the novel is addressed to an uninformed reader. Does this imply that Wolf's agenda in the village in the jungle was to concretize at least for the intimate Bloomsbury circle, the myth of colonization as being the best possible alternative for the colony, thereby stereotyping or stereotypically justifying the colonizer's civilizing mission. I leave, leave that question open. In the following section, I will examine the village, village in the jungle against the traditional foundations of a single Buddhist agricultural village in order to understand the ways in which wolves imaginary confronted the realities or fallacies of the colonizer colonized phenomenon so i'm moving now to my third point the uh, third segment and to the first uh, focus in it on uh, traditions the traditional singhala buddhist village was built around four essential features the temple that occupied the high ground the village at second level, you can draw it, you know, it's like in a circle. The temple on high ground, the village at second level, the tank or the irrigation at third level, the paddy field at the fourth. Around the village would be a jungle that fed the animals used in agriculture, while the villagers also used it for shena cultivation. The villagers in the village of Baddegama are Buddhists. For instance, in Karlina Hami's old song, our women's feet are weary, but the day must end somewhere for the followers in the way. Oh no, sorry, I haven't got that. Okay. Have I missed something? Nine, ten. Okay. 
In this particular lullaby, life is conceived as a journey in samsara, the Buddhist cycle of suffering. It is the Buddhist belief, as in this song, uh, that night, nirvana, will release one at last into, into spiritual liberation. So is the melancholy fatalism that Wolf so sympathized with, the acceptance of fate. To quote again from uh, the short stories, in this, this one, Pearls and Swine. Show you Ah, yes, here it is. Things happen slowly, says Wolf in the short story, inexorably by fate. And you, you don't do things. You watch with the 300 millions. You feel small, not very powerful. So that's from Pearls and Swine. This belief in fate is ever-present in the Badrigama villager. Silindu understands, and I quote, A man may wash himself clean of oil, but however much he rubs himself, he will never rub off fate. Close quote. When children die of sickness or malnutrition, the women say, and I quote again, It is the month of August. Children die. What can we do? In these instances in the novel, we can agree with Alec Waugh's congratulatory message to Wolf when he said, You have done what I did not think it possible for a Westerner to do. Got inside the mind and heart of the Far East. It is a unique achievement. And I agree with this. However, there is more to the gradual destruction of the Badegama villagers than their acceptance of fate. The village lacks the tradition of the temple and the resident monk. And why was there no temple in Badegama? One practical reason is that the clergy depends on the villagers for sustenance, daily sustenance, which is offered to them as alms by the villagers. In Badegama, the villagers themselves are starving. A monk could not be retained. Without the temple, the villagers must walk in the blistering heat for six days to get to the nearest temple. Once there, they experience the most wonderful sense of well-being, listening as a tiny community, and this is also important in Buddhism, to a man who has been brought up in a Buddhist temple, preach to them about how they should live their lives in order to acquire merit. And the effect of this, and I quote, Karlina Hami's face shone with ecstasy and a sense of well-being and quiet strange to her uh, uh, sorry a sense of well-being and quiet strange to her stole over Hinihami even in Silindu there came a change he joined in the chant buddhang saranangachami with which they began and ended their day then the sufferings of the day were forgotten and a feeling stole over them of peace and holiness and merit acquired. This is very, very familiar. The spiritual healing that spreads among the exhausted pilgrims implies that a similar ambience in their village may have helped them cope better with their lives. However, in the absence of the monk, the people regress further and further into superstition, jungle gods and devils. Fraudulent and manipulative men such as Punjirala, the medicine man, assume leadership. He is the cause of Silindu's psychological downward spiral into near death. Other amoral individuals such as Babihami, the village headman, and Fernando, the petty mudalali, freely exploit the villagers, again in the absence of a monk uh, and the discipline of the temple. In the end, it is from a mad and filthy beggar that Silindu understands the basic tenets of Buddhism. He is on his way to imprisonment after the murders. Wolf trivializes the philosophy by using a beggar ridiculed by the villagers and as mad as Silindu himself to expound the philosophy. 
Although the beggar makes sense to Silindu, his exposition would sound incoherent and ridiculous to an intelligent, uninformed reader, as for instance, Lytton Strachey in Bloomsbury. Had the words been given to a monk or a wandering mendicant of a less absurd caste, the philosophy could have impressed the intellect of Wolf's targeted readership. Much later in his life, Wolf reflected in growing on his pleasurable encounter with a dignified, well-educated Buddhist man who had surrendered to a life of gentle contemplation as a sweeper in a temple. He just left everything, education, uh, family, business, everything, and took off to the temple where he assumed the life of a, uh, a, a very, very humble sweeper. And Wolf had many discussions with him. This makes you wonder whether his portrayal of the mendicant in the novel as mad and downright foolish was not a deliberate attempt to play down indigenous philosophy with orientalist arrogance. As well, it seems inconceivable that Wolf did not realize the void created in a Buddhist village by the absence of the disciplinary and educationally base of the temple. His direct role, after all, was, and I quote, to increase the prosperity and happiness of the natives under His Majesty's government. And I'm quoting from Maitland's Minute. We could perhaps conclude that in his imperialist guise, Wolf was not moved to show up his government's neglect of this tradition. I move on now to the next one, the tank and the irrigation system So from the temple. As already noted, next to the, temp uh, next to the temple in rank, was the village irrigation system that included the water storage tank provided that, that provided water for cultivation, which is the most important thing in the village in the jungle. The Sri Lankan hydraulic system antecedes history. Until a little bit of history here, until British colonization, the Rajakarya system, the ancient custom of compulsory labor to the king, ensured the maintenance of the irrigation system. The clustering, particularly the clustering of small tanks in the dry zones that the water collected one from the other to the other to the other. During the earlier decades of British rule, no attempt was made to encourage paddy cultivation. British administration abolished the Rajakarya system in, 19, in 1832 on the grounds that it was a form of slavery. No alternative system was introduced for the maintenance and repair of small village tanks. From 1832 to 1887, no one was officially responsible for the village irrigation works, and this led to their decay, especially in the more remote parts of the dry zone. Wolf was officially well informed of the significance of the tank to the village. I quote from his diaries. There is no longer any village at Andravava. The inhabitants all died or left some five years ago. One old man who came to me used to live there. He owns land under the tank. Its only use to him is that a year or two ago he went to jail for not doing earthwork. This tank must be struck off. This is a case of not seeing the wood for the trees. It was the government's business to restore tanks and assist the villagers to maintain them, not to take the shortcut and strike them off a list. In all this, Wolf notes one village called Thissamaharama, and I quote, a wonderful place one gets to through uninhabited jungle, a great plain of paddy fields and coconuts and dargabas and irrigation channels and tanks, and then, as suddenly, on the other side, into the jungle again, close quote. In the village in the jungle, that was from the diaries. 
sorry in the village in the jungle he notes the beautiful village of mahapatana which arguably would be tisamarama that i referred to just then taking care to mention that the tank had been restored by the government so he makes note of that when it is there however in the case of badegama the tank is virtually written off the novel opens with the jungle ends with the jungle and the drought as enemies of the people in it is many pages after wolf does the description of the jungle in the first pages that wolf even refers to the tank and then almost in passing and that's what he says below the huts to the east of the village lay the tank a large shallow depression in the jungle where the depression was deepest the villagers had raised a long narrow bund of mound of or mound of earth so that when the rain fell the tank served as a large pond in which to store the water below the bund lay the stretch of rice fields about 30 acres which the villagers cultivated if the tank filled with water but then he distracts the reader's attention by returning to the jungle which he sees as the prime enemy and i quote again it rose high and dense around the fields and the tank it stretched away unbroken covering all the country except the fields the tank and the little piece of ground upon which the houses and compounds stood close quote badegama is finally wiped out as the last inhabitant punchimanika is again claimed by the jungle because of course in wolf's imaginary the jungle and not his government was the predominant enemy the tank the paddy field the chela cultivations all the livelihood of the villagers has disappeared this is a telling comment on the ways in which the imperial government failed the colony as i have shown this is not the message that wolf conveys to us and now i move on to the administrative and legal system the traditional system of administration in sri lanka was embedded again i referred to this before the rajakarya system the system of land tenure in which land was granted in exchange for services rendered this system was abolished by the british in 1802 and a new tax system consisting of a share of land produced that all the villagers had to give a share of what they cultivated to the government was substituted for the traditional system it was hated by the villagers and wolf himself notes this in his diaries and i will read that the present is an evil age for the people they say among the misfortunes that come upon them are one the road tax two the vc tax three irrigation tax and last the taxes on carts and guns he continues for the fifth one and a very stern assistant government agent who made sure that all these taxes were paid right so that's a little bit of irony there in badegama this system trapped the villagers in a vicious cycle of debt and deprivation however the novel turns this more into a long drawn out internal conflict between the village headman and the villagers rather than a critique of an exploitative system the convictions and moving on to the legal the convictions of babun and silindu could also have been a direct indictment of the british legal system a summary of the legal system as it existed prior to british colonization would be something like this the king was the absolute head of the people below him were the chiefs under whose control the peasants cultivated the land the daily administration of the village however was by the informally set up gamsaba the village uh, council that comprised the heads of important families of the village the gamsaba would mete out punishment for crimes 
Babunan Silindi therefore understand nothing of what is happening in the formal Western courtroom, where they are falsely charged of theft. In the courtroom, it appears that the fundamentals of law are flouted, as personal, illicit motives of Babihami and Fernando triumph. Basically, the distance between the legal system and the villager is unbridgeable. All that Babun and Silindu understand is that freedom lies in the jungle, that they see through the window, uh, framed through the window of the courtroom. As EFC Ludovic commented, and I quote, what was called on this occasion, sorry, what was called on this occasion was a judge full of wisdom, understanding and compassion. What is provided is the painstakingly honest inadequacy of British justice, the blindfold figure with the avenging sword and scales. The proceedings, despite all efforts to the contrary, become a charade. Close quote. It is interesting that, while the fictional theatre enacts this drama, it also reflects Wolfe's conscience that justice was not clearly done. It depicts that the legal system was not workable in the Sri Lankan community, resulting in the imprisonment of Babun and later Silindu. But the negatives of the system seem oblique because of Wolfe's strong emphasis on its sophistication. He keeps talking about uh, how or the case is conducted on the objective uh, uh, presentation of evidence. Consequently, the problems within the case are made to rest with Babun and Silindu. They are too poor to hire a lawyer to defend them, have no knowledge of English that, th that was the medium of court communication, and being illiterate and foolish are unable to understand the proceedings. Later in the story, when in his frustration and ignorance of the working of the law, Silindu admits to killing his enemies to the magistrate, who is also the AGA, the magistrate notes that, and I quote, he was not one of those who regarded it as a simple case, close quote. But again, a little distracted and tired after his day's work, he does nothing to work through his suspicions. This only further emphasizes the failure of the justice system of the time. One other incident in the novel is significant or two. Earlier in the story, Babun arrives in despair at the Kachari, to submit a petition against the village headman, Babihami, who is hell-bent on destroying him. One of Babihami's strategies was to hold back Silindu, uh, Babun's chena license, just as earlier he forced debt-ridden Silindu to pay up his gun license, even though Babihami's own friends went their way unthreatened by any license. At the Kachari, Babun finds that the AGA is out of circuit, out on circuit, and the local in-betweens in the AGA's office must be bribed if he were to get even a hearing. In Wolf's description of this scene, he neglects to foreground the fact that it was the AGA's duty to maintain discipline and honesty among his staff. Such indifference in the authorities, who are absent when needed, and whose laxity allowed for corruption among the lower ranks seems not the important issue. Once again, as in the courtroom, the problem is somehow transferred to, Bab uh, to Babun. He is just foolish, absolute dumbo, and unsophisticated to jump through the hoops. Thereby, the narrative voice sidelines the main issue with the cover story that the villagers were so lacking as human beings that nothing could save them anyway. I will go into one other point. I will provide one more example of the way in which Wolf denigrates the village as being less human, villager as being less human and more primitive and animalistic. 
after the formal court case fails, um, fails to deliver justice, Silindo kills both Fernando and Babihami by showing, uh, by slowly working himself up into the psychology of a village buffalo. He near personifies into a uh, morphs into a buffalo. Let me read that uh, passage, which is very telling. The elephant, they say, but that I have never seen. But the buffalo, I have seen that here on this very track, before it was cleared, many years ago. The buffalo is stupid, isn't he, little Arachi? Very stupid. He does not see, he does not hear, he goes on wallowing in his mud, and they hunt him ear after ear. They shoot him. It was near here. At first crash, he tears away through the jungle, the blood flowing down. He is afraid, very afraid, but the pain brings anger and cunning. And now, Arachi, comes the game, the dangerous game. The young men laugh at it. There he stood, do you see? There under that mytilian tree, head down, very still. And the hunter, full, full, crept after him through the undergrowth. There was no track then. Ah, it was thick then. He could not see but anything but the shrubs and the thorns. He did not see the red eyes behind him, nor the great head down, for the other was cunning now, very cunning and very angry. And when the hunter had gone on a little, do you hear, little Arachi? Then out and crash, he charged, charged like this. Babihami had at first hardly listened, but the fury and excitement of Silindu had at last forced his attention. As Silindu said the last words, Babihami half stopped and turned his head. He just saw Silindu's blazing eyes and foam on the corner of his lips. The body writhed, so Silindu pulls the trigger. The body writhed and twisted on the ground for a minute and then was still. Silindu kicked it with his foot to say whether it was dead. There was no movement and Silindu goes back to the village. So in my view, the buffalo is a lowly animal in the village. Unlike the elephant, to whom Wolf also refers, that holds an almost human and sacred place in the collective psychology of the Sinhalese people. Even today, it is a colloquial to say, it is a colloquialism to say, don't stare at me like a buffalo. That we hear often, we tell our domestics like that, do not stare at me like a buffalo. Go and do your work, have you no brain? You know, that kind of thing, right? There is no way that Wolf, with his knowledge of the villager, did not know this. When Silindu is paralleled with the buffalo, Wolf enhances its stupidity, its slow arousal to violence, its red eyes, brute strength, the way it wallows stupidly in the mud, and the way it charges blindly. The fact that Silindu plans out the murder with a lot of cunning, with a lot of intelligence and a lot of strategy, he gets two men in one go, right? Seems to take second place to Wolf's arousal in him of the nature of the buffalo. So ultimately, the tragic hero that Silinde could have represented is re reduced to that of a wild animal that wallows in uncontrolled anger and revenge, okay? So, in conclusion then, I'm sure everyone is very happy. 
the village in the jungle is a non-linear crisscrossing context driven novel in his preface to dorian gray i'm just quoting at random here one of my favorites oscar wilde says and i quote to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim at the end of the day Leonard Wolf was caught up in his own frustrations and his contempt for indigenous life. The village in the jungle creates the fantasy of the jungle obliterating the village and conceals that it was the colonizer who did that. It offers a misreading of reality, however dramatic and powerful. Simultaneously, Wolf's conscience shows through in the novel in flashes of self-critique, pity for and understanding of the victims. These contradictions will continue to challenge the reader. I'm sure next century in this very room there will be another um, another celebration of this book. Right? It it will go on. Wolf's retrospective vision in growing registers a similar confusion. He noted his uncertainty about returning to Sri Lanka because, and I quote, he no longer believed in imperialism, and yet he fantasized with the imperialistic delusion of, and I quote again immersing himself in a district like Hambantota for the remainder of his life and making it the most efficient, the most prosperous place in Asia, close quote. As we know, of course, as it happened, he married Virginia Woolf and in the same year wrote The Village in the Jungle. His loss, our gain, perhaps we got the novel. Thank you.